evidence and answers. Christian apologists have disagreed on approaches to how we should do apologetics. Just as there are different viewpoints on prophecy, there are different forms of apologetics. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Richard Howe, will be explaining the differences and which approach they believe follows the biblical model and is the best way to engage the unbelieving world for Christ. Now with the conclusion to this interview is Pat and his guest, Dr. Richard Howe. So Sproul kind of forced this issue with his fellow reform thinkers between the classical and the presuppositional. So one of the things that came out of that, these early contentions and debates like Sproul-Bonson debate in the 70s, one of the things that came out from that was the accusation that Sproul made was that they're arguing in a circle. Because it's seemingly circular argument to say, well, if you start with the truth of the Christian faith, the Trinitarian God of the 66 books of the Protestant Reformed Bible, however much they want to qualify. If you start with that, then can't you see how true it is? Well, yeah, if I grant it to be true, of course it's going to be true. I mean, that's just a circular argument. Well, the presuppositionalist response over the decades has been, but really all reasoning is circular. Right. You know, so ours is a sort of maybe not a fatal kind of circularity the way the lost man. I just think that's patently false. It's not true that all reasoning is circular. In fact, it's interesting you and I are having this conversation now because I'm trying to finish up a blog that I'll post. I blog about every other Haley's Comet, basically. That's how often I blog. (laughs) And I'm trying to get the final touches on this, and I'm dealing with that very issue to show how it is and why it is that it isn't true that all reasoning is circular. And it may be something more afield than what we want to get into here in our conversation, but I just flat deny that's even the case. They think everybody's is, so it's not an indictment on end that theirs is. I deny the charges personally as a classical apologist. Yeah, explain that a little more to us. I know John Frame takes quite a while in his book to defend circular reasoning. You know, what is that and why is that not a valid form of an argument? So circular reasoning basically is when you try to argue for a conclusion, but the conclusion you're trying to argue for is actually part of your argument for your conclusion. So it's the old joke that people may have heard where he said, hey, do you, my friend Bob told me that he talks with angels. And he says, well, how do you know that that's true? He said, well, he told me that he did. He said, well, why would you believe him when he told you he talked with angels? And he goes, well, would somebody that talked to angels lie? <laughs> and you go, well, wait a minute. You're using the fact that he talks to angels as a way of proving that he talks to angels. And it's an illicit form of reasoning called circular reasoning. The reason why I think they can't see that that's not what's going on is because they invariably mistakenly describe human knowing in the ultimate categories of things like beliefs are propositions. And I go, well, I certainly have beliefs and I certainly talk in propositions. The sun is shining or whatever. But that's not what starts my knowledge. As a knower, as a human knower, the first thing that I encounter is the external physical world. Well, that's not a proposition. Propositions are about things. I can make a statement about the sun, but a statement about the sun is not the same as the sun. 
So when I walk out and see the sun shining, that's not a proposition I'm encountering. It's actual physical reality. So that's why the classical model isn't circular, because we would say, yeah, we don't start with assumptions or presuppositions or beliefs or properties or propositions. A number of different ways philosophers may describe it. That's not where we say knowledge begins. It begins in an encounter between the knower and the thing known, actual things in reality, like rocks and people and clouds and trees and laptops and computers and and uh, radio talk show hosts and things like that. So our, our model isn't circular, whereas theirs is because they think, well, everybody starts with a presupposition. And so here's our presupposition, and it does a better job than anybody else's, so therefore it must be the one to go with. And I go, I don't start with presuppositions. I start with an encounter with uh, the external objective reality. And so it seems like they change, you know, the, you know, makes consistency the measure of truth rather than the correspondence view of truth. That's a very interesting way to say it, I think, because I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. They, in effect, would regard knowledge and truth as the individual human thinking in a finite way the same thing God is thinking or saying. And so this is Van Til's mistaken definition of what analogy is. Analogy is this really thick term in in philosophy from the Middle Ages onward that people like Thomas Aquinas would talk about. Well, Van Til basically just redefines it, and it says, well, when we know things, what we are doing is just thinking what God's thinking, sort of in a, in a microcosm of because they don't think we're all infinite and omniscient. And I go, that's more like this coherence kind of thing where if what I think comports with what God thinks, then we just call that true. Rather than, well, no, both what, what we think and by analogy what God thinks are true because that's the way reality is, his being as God and then the way he's made creation. So when I think in correspondence to what God is, is really or what his creation is really, that correspondence is really what one ought to mean by true. And I think you're right. They seem to fall short on a robust and thick enough definition of what true is. Yeah. Now, one of the things they seem to get uh, upset about is that presuppositionalists will say, well, you classical apologists argue that belief in God is reasonable, that the Bible, there's reasonable, there's a lot of evidence to show that we have good reason to believe the Bible is true. We have good reason to believe in the resurrection. And they said, you're arguing that Christianity is reasonable. And right. They, you're right. And they're saying, no, you, if you believe something is true, you need to start with the premise that it is indeed absolutely true, not that it's reasonable. Right, and I think what they are, in effect, stumbling over is this issue of whether or not a human being is omniscient. They obviously don't think we are as cre created by God, but they end up setting the bar such that, in effect, the only way a, a human could ever say they know anything is by some omniscience. And of course they'll say, yes, right, that omniscience is God and his word. They go, well, now that's another circular argument because if I've got to be hooked up with an omniscient source, God, in order to know anything at all, then how would I ever know in the first place that there was this God with whom I had to hook up in order to know things? It becomes this, again, a, a vicious circular argument. So 
I think they worry too much about the fact that oftentimes when I'm in discussions with people and they try to challenge, well, are you, how do you know that? How do you know this? Or is it possible that you're wrong here? And eventually I will just interrupt them and go, look, if you're asking me, am I omniscient? I'll say no. So in the sense in which a human is not omniscient, we would have to say the, new, the human's knowledge is fallible in some principled sense, right? I mean, it's, the only way to be absolutely certain about anything is just to be God. Well, none of us are that. I think the presuppositionalists make too much out of that, and they try to say, well, what you've come up with is just a probability of the truth of Christianity, and they try to disparage that like, well, but the Bible talks about how we can be certain, you know, no, without a doubt, and these things that go, you're confusing the distinction between the apologetics and the philosophy of an issue, the philosophical issue of knowing, versus the experience, the, the spiritual experience we have when we come to faith in Christ and that sense of knowing. It's like knowing that your spouse loves you. It's like, well, okay, there's a difference between how I know that my spouse loves me and how I know that there's going to be a, an eclipse on some day in the future because of the calculations. Those are kind of two different senses of the word know, and I think sometimes a presuppositionalist confuses those two. Yeah, why is it valid to say we can be reasonably sure of the resurrection? We can be reasonably sure that God exists. Uh, some people might get a little uncomfortable by saying, well, could it be you're saying maybe we're wrong? I mean, why is that uh, reasonable to say or a good thing to say? Yes, so I, I think it's a good thing to say uh, as a practical matter when we are engaging the unbeliever by exhibiting a, cer a certain amount of humility about our knowing faculties. If we come across where I, I know I'm right and I have absolutely no doubt and there's no possible way, well, of course, you hear that from a lot of cult members who actually maybe even killed themselves like the Heaven's Gate people. They were absolutely certain that when the Hellbop comet came, they'd drink the poison, they'd fly up to this UFO and go to the level beyond human. They were absolutely certain about that. So that ought to be a lesson to all of us go, look, any human can think they're certain and still be wrong. Well, if we look at that and go, so I think a more honest way to acknowledge it is, depending on the issue we're talking about, I might admit it's possible that I'm, I'm wrong about that. Now, that sounds more extreme than I would even mean it. I go, sometimes people have asked when in debate, the Christian will ask during the Q&A, they'll ask the atheist, well, what would be enough evidence, or what would you count as evidence for God? I started thinking, well, what am I going to do if somebody says, what would you count as evidence against God, for example, for debating God? I said, basically, if I could be convinced that the laws of logic do not apply to reality, then I think I would probably uh, maybe retire my confidence that God exists. Now, that may sound like I'm cheating, because how could you possibly prove the laws of logic don't apply to reality without using the laws of logic to do that, right? But what I meant by that is I'm as certain about the existence and attributes of God and the truth of Christianity as I think a human can be, but at the same time admit I'm not omniscient. So if by not being omniscient means I'm, I quote, could be wrong, then I'll admit I quote, could be wrong. But I'm willing to do, get in and, and, and do the uh, hard work of the argument and the debate and the evidence. And that's all I think you can ask of any other fellow human being. Yes, and also we don't want to make the mistake of setting the bar too high. If you go into an evangelistic context with a skeptic, an atheist, a, a Buddhist, and you say, I'm going to present for you an airtight case 
uh, that God exists, the Bible is true, and Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to answer all your questions, and with you know, I'm going to uh, with make you convinced without a doubt that Christianity is true. Well, that's pretty much an impossible standard. Absolutely, it seems like it is, and it, it also is missing the fact that that because uh, the presuppositionalists will say our case is incontrovertible. But then they admit in their own writings, but we don't mean by that that as soon as we give our arguments, everybody's going to agree with us. I go, okay, well, then in effect, you're saying it's not incontrovertible in some people's minds. Otherwise, they would grant your conclusion infallibly every time you you gave the argument, which obviously doesn't happen. So we all have to have some explanation. Well, if I'm so confident that I'm right, how do I explain the fact that people that seem to be just as competent as I am – are wrong. How do I explain that? Interestingly, I think Christianity has a better explanation as to why there are atheists than atheism has as an explanation of why there are Christians. Because our view of reality in total, the whole Christian faith with the fall and everything, it actually predicts that there would be atheists. So like a scientific model that makes predictions, hey, if we're right, we ought to see this litmus test turn the paper pink or blue or something. Christianity its very view of the nature of reality and the nature of God and how humans relate to God actually predicts that there will be people who will reject it. But there's really nothing about atheism that would predict and would have expected that there would be people that wouldn't be atheists. So I don't know how persuasive that would be to an atheist, but I go, it's not inconsistent with our model that there are people that deny our conclusion because that's actually part of our model in a way in which it's really not part of the atheist model that he would expect people of equal competence, deep philosophers and thinkers deny his atheism. Dr. Howe, why is it that there is some hostility between these two camps, the presuppositional and the classical or evidential apologist? I have Van Til's book here in front of me, and I remember reading it back in my seminary days, and he actually calls classical apologetics you know, a blasphemous form of evangelism or reasoning. Why is there some of that? And, and I get a lot of flack from those in the presuppositional camp. I, in fact, uh, when I was in Dallas, I actually worked with one. And hmm. he said we could never share the stage together if we're defending the faith, you oh, know, goodness. kind of thing. Why is there some hostility there? You know, one of the things that's occurred to me recently, I had the privilege a few months ago to participate in a panel, online uh, Zoom or Facebook Live debate, with two presuppositionalists and one of my associates from the seminary and I. And after that evening, it was a fairly uh, friendly and uh, productive in, in many ways conversation. But one of the things that I think I noticed was the, the sort of just intransigence and resistance and digging in the heels that some presuppositionalists have, I think might arise out of their mistaken notion that if they are Calvinists, are reformed, or however you want to characterize it, if they are that, they have to be presuppositional. So I think almost emotionally, they're so, they come at the argument so harshly because there's a lot at stake in their mind. I don't think that is at stake. I think people like John Gerstner or, or, or Ashley Sproul prove, ought to prove, that maybe somebody who's reformed could be consistently classical in their apologetics. It's interesting you mentioned Van Til's characterization. I remember also Van Til, he had to come to terms with the fact that he noticed that his predecessors at Princeton, and then later he, when he basically becomes Westminster Seminary after they migrate out of Princeton Seminary, he has to come to terms with the fact that they were all staunch 
champions of reformed theology, but they weren't presuppositional. So he had to constantly characterize them as less consistent Calvinism. That's a little bit softer than saying it was blasphemous, uh, but I think it's sort of in that direction. I regret that because I think it's not even true, but I think a lot of it, the emotions get stirred up because they think mistakenly, there's so much at stake that I'll have to just retire everything I think about the Bible if I don't maintain and sustain this apologetic method. They ought to learn from their own heritage that Calvin wasn't in this vein. He extolled the virtues, intellectual virtues of the pagan Greek philosophers as God's gifts. He even calls them the gift of God uh, and the the light of truth that they brought. Well, you, I can't think you'd ever find a presuppositionalist admitting that, even though that's that's what Calvin would say. So, yeah, so, and, and of course, I, I, I'm susceptible to the same kind of failings as well. I have to be careful in the enthusiasm of a debate that I don't let my pride get the better of me and say, well, regardless of who's right, I can't let on that I'm wrong about anything kind of attitude because then I'm going to look like a fool. And I think that's not very Christ-like. So we should all learn from one another that there are essentials to the faith that we'll die for, and then there are more peripheral things that may have a lot of practical import, but they're not the difference between heaven and hell. And so we have to have a little bit of charity with towards those who, with whom we disagree. Yes, you know, uh, one of the courses I teach here at the seminary here in Hawaii, you know, is apologetics. And one of the books I have our students read, it's a pretty good one, uh, Five Views of Apologetics. Yeah. And, and they present presuppositional, classical, evidential. Anyway, the one defending the presuppositional case is John Frame. And I thought it was pretty interesting what he ended up presenting. It ended up looking more like a classical model. What was your... Yes, I, I, I got the same. I got the same feeling. In fact, I use that textbook as well in classes that I've taught on apologetic systems. And Steve Cowan is actually a friend of mine. I've known him. For, in fact, Steve was really instrumental in me ending up at uh, University of Arkansas to do my PhD because that's where he had done his. I've sensed the same thing, and I've often explained it by maybe this is a virtue of John Frame that I think his concern was to really try to build bridges between the different camps, especially the two main ones of presuppositional versus classical. So I think he tried to accentuate some of the areas that may be more common between us, and probably to the consternation of everybody else on both sides, that we were trying to say, no, no, the same between us, that's fine, but until we get to what's different between us, we haven't had our conversation yet. Kind of his defense, I go, maybe it's just a product of his charitable character to try to say, look, there, there, there are some things we disagree on, but maybe we could start to find areas where we do agree and build on some of those. Yeah. Do you ever see these two groups, I uh, hate to use this word, uh, working together, uh, getting along? Well, if, you know, when you were saying earlier, uh, something you said earlier triggered a thought in me. I, I, I was president one, for a couple of years of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, ISCA. As we, as we call it. It was founded by Norm Geiser around 2003, I think. And when I had the panel debate with Adam Tucker from our seminary and then the two presuppositional gentlemen, well, we realized in our conversation before and during the debate, it came out, both of those presuppositionalists were members of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, of which I was a former president. So 
they were celebrating that, actually. They were celebrating that as an indication. There's a lot of things that we all cherish, like the inerrancy of the Bible, that we're in solidarity on and we stand shoulder to shoulder on. And you probably can't find very many more formidable defenders of the integrity and inerrancy of the Bible than a lot of these reformed thinkers, uh, both presuppositional and classical. So that was just, it was sort of ironic in a way that we were, we had this common bond in an academic society of apologetics, yet we were on such different sides in terms of how you even do apologetics in the first place. Ah, interesting. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Richard Howe, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the finest seminaries, one of the first actually designed for equipping young men and women for the defense of the gospel. Uh, you know, Dr. Howe, in our final moments together, tell us about Southern Evangelical and some of the changes taking place over there. Well, thank you so much for, for bringing that up. Yes, we actually were the first seminary to do seminary curriculum with a heavy emphasis on apologetics. And one of the things that Norm Geisler noticed, and I noticed this eventually as a student back in the 80s at Dallas Theological Seminary, was in the 80s, a lot of seminaries were getting rid of their apologetic courses for various reasons. And so it not only was there no seminary that you could get a degree in apologetics, there, there were fewer and fewer seminaries where you could even take courses in it. And that and other things motivated him to try to found a seminary. And he found a like-minded pastor, Ross Rhodes, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and together they founded SES. And so I had the privilege of coming on faculty back in 95, about two years after the seminary began, and have been connected with them uh, ever since. So I'm grateful to do that. First, if anyone's interested in the seminary, they can go to the website at ses.edu. The thing that's exciting about what we're doing is the, in God's providence, we got a leg up on online education. We were already headed in that direction before I think a lot of seminaries were. Now a lot of schools are forced to do that because of the lockdowns and the in the coronavirus pandemic. They're forced to try to make up for classes by appealing to something through the internet. We had already been doing that for several years. So I think now we're on the cutting edge of the quality of online studies. All the degrees that we offer from a bachelor's all the way up through the PhD can be done entirely through the internet if they want to do that. So that's exciting. And actually, it's real self-serving for me to be so happy about it because it's enabled me, though I live in Atlanta now instead of Charlotte, I'm almost teaching a full-time load. In fact, I am teaching a full-time load, even though I'm an emeritus professor. They've let me stay tethered to the seminary. And uh, so I'm grateful for that, to be able to teach courses through Zoom and our course management, internet course management system called Canvas. And uh, it's just been, I've had a great time doing that. Yes, I almost forgot. Yeah, Southern was one of the first uh, schools out there offering degrees online. So those of you here in Hawaii or in Asia who are listening to us, you can get your degree through the Internet. I recommend you fly out there uh, once in a while and take a one, two-week course and get, you know, there's nothing like studying live under one of these professors and interacting with your colleagues there. But you can get your full degree online as one. It's got one of the best programs in the country, I think, in the world there at Southern Evangelical. I mean, it's interesting you say that because uh, I've got two students in a class right now that's going on. Both of them are from Honolulu, 
Yeah. So. And and in the same class, I've got a student who's uh, from uh, South Africa. So Honolulu is six hours behind Eastern time in Atlanta and South, South Africa six hours ahead. So we're spanning 12 time zones in one course. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> I you know, tried to convince Norm Geisler that for every student I recruit from Hawaii or Asia, I should get a big discount. But uh, never, absolutely, you, never, you never certainly quite deserve it. Him. <laughs> Not, <laughs> yes. Well, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Richard Howe. If people want more information on you, where can they go, Dr. Howe? So, in a moment of humility, I bought and named an internet domain after myself. <laughs> so you can go to richardghow.com. You got, don't leave out the G. I tell audiences that it stands for good looking, so that's why they'll never forget <laughs> it. So richardghow.com. Now, the, the first thing they'll notice is I'm not a web developer, so it's kind of a cheesy format, but I think all the links are there, and I've got tons of material for free that people can download from multimedia to PDFs and, and all kinds of uh, sources. They can email me at richard at richardghow.com as an email address, and I'm happy to entertain questions. And if they want to know more about apologetics or the seminary or whatever, happy to, uh, to entertain that. Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Richard Howe here on Evidence and Answers. So, Richard, thanks for being a guest with us. We'll have you back Thank again. you. Thank you so much. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners, for the opportunity to donate head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucker.